The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, Friends, it is great to be with you. If you're a guest this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here and uh, glad that you would join us as we uh, come to God's word, as we sing praise to him, as we uh, honor him in our worship. And uh, this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, during the season of Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is that season historically where the church has remembered the first coming of our Lord Jesus. And so the ways in which the church historically has remembered this is through a series of looking at um, Jesus' birth narratives, right, in Matthew and Luke, of looking at predictive texts from the Old Testament, those promises and prophecies that are made of Jesus' coming. And we've done a variety of these in, in years past, and this year we're going to look at some of those predictive passages, specifically those that are found in the book of Isaiah. And this morning, we're going to begin by looking at Isaiah 7. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 7. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's a prophet. It's near kind of the second half of the Old Testament, past Psalms, Proverbs, etc. You'll, you'll find Isaiah there. But we'll come to chapter 7. And, and even if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, maybe you haven't read it in a while, maybe you've never read it, Even if you're not familiar with it, you're probably familiar with one line that is taken from our passage this morning. It's a promise that is made that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. I imagine that many of us are familiar with it, not maybe because we've read Isaiah or because we're doing our daily quiet times in the Old Testament prophets, though that would be a good thing to do. Uh, But but we're probably familiar with it because of of Matthew's gospel. Because there, this verse is used, it is spoken of, it is declared that Jesus is the fulfillment of this word. But in its original context, in the book of Isaiah, this word is spoken as as a way of comforting God's people. You see, God's people in the midst of this declaration of chapter 7, in the midst of this, this people are in turmoil. They are in fear, they're in uncertainty, and not just the people, but the king, Ahaz himself. And so chapter 7 of Isaiah comes to them to give them comfort, to give them peace, to help them to believe. So let's go ahead and read Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. 
Because Syria, with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not, as have not yet come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we come to it acknowledging that, that there are people and places and occasions that are de depicted here that, that we are unfamiliar with. And so we need you to help us. We need you to teach us. We need you to show us uh, the truth of your word, that you would show us the beauty of your gospel, that you would teach us your grace, even from this portion of your word. And so we ask that you would help me so that my words would be clear. We ask that you would help us all so that we would be attentive to your word and that we would be your people who believe in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, how do you respond to fear? <clears throat> when you're confronted by a situation, a circumstance, an occasion that's out of your control, what do you do? When it appears that there's only darkness before you, how do you respond? Well, I imagine that many of us, we respond like Marlon did in Finding Nemo. You remember Finding Nemo, that wonderful story about Marlon, this father clownfish who is looking for his son Nemo. He's swimming throughout the ocean. He's going from place to place. He's encountering all sorts of different fish. He's diverting different threats, and he's looking for this little clownfish, Nemo. He's, he's uh, swimming off to Australia because there he has been taken by a fisherman. He's actually a dentist. He's in a dental office. Marlon doesn't know that yet. But along the way, Marlon meets this other fish, Dory. And Dory, his new friend, swims with him on their search for Nemo. Well, along the surge, they come to this terrible trench, this dark trench. It's right before the sea turtles. Y'all remember? The sea turtles have got to be like the best, some of the best characters Disney ever created, right? Like, I'm ready for their Finding Sea Turtles movie. But regardless, um, they, they, before they come across the sea turtles, they come to this enormous trench. It's dark, and it's scary, and they're terrified. And, and Dory starts swimming towards it, remember? And Marlin stops her 
right? He sees the darkness, and he knows they're going to be surrounded by rock, and he knows that they'll be susceptible to attacks, and bigger fish will swoop down and eat them, and finding Nemo will be no more, right? And so, so he stops her. He tries to tell her, no, don't swim through it. We need to swim over it. Because, Dory, look, above the trench, there's light. There's the sun. There's no rocks. It's free and clear. It's safe. But Dory persists. We're supposed to swim through it, not over it. This is the best way forward. This is what they've been told just previously. Some other fish who were helping them on their way said, swim through it, not over it. In other words, Dory says to Marlin, I know this looks dangerous. I know it looks scary. But we need to swim through it, not over it. You need to believe me. But Marlin didn't believe. If you know the story, you know that the apparent danger that was before him, what he saw with his eyes, the darkness and the threat, it overweighed, it outweighed the belief in his friend's words. And so they swam over it. And they quickly discovered that they should have believed. He should have listened to his friend. He should have believed her words and swam through it, not over it, because they find their uh, sea filled with jellyfish. They didn't swim through it. They swam over it. He disbelieved his friend's words. And, and that is the problem with Marlin. You see, his problem ultimately wasn't the trench, it wasn't his situation, it wasn't even his fear. His problem ultimately was that he didn't believe. He didn't believe. And that's Ahaz's problem. The king of Judah, that's his problem. Not what's confronting him, not his situation, not even his fear, but his lack of belief. And to understand that it's belief that is his problem or his lack thereof, we have to understand some of the context. You see, this portion of Isaiah is being written in the 7th century BC. And during this time, in the ancient Near East, Assyria, so Assyria, not Syria, that can get confusing, I know. Assyria is the superpower in the ancient Near East. And Assyria is taking over and attacking different little countries and different little places, some of which were like Syria and Israel. They were threatened by Assyria. But in this time, Israel is broken up into two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom, which here is referred to as Ephraim, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. And the southern kingdom, Ahaz, is the king. And so what's happening now is Assyria is bearing down upon these little nations. And so Syria and the northern kingdom, Ephraim, they get together and they decide, you know what, let's form an alliance. We can't defeat Assyria by ourselves, but maybe we can hold them at bay together. And so they form a coalition. But they start to realize, you know, we're not enough. We're not going to be strong enough. We're not going to be powerful enough. And so let's go ahead and get the southern kingdom involved too. We'll go to Judah and Ahaz and we'll get them to be part of our coalition. And if they won't agree to it, too bad. We'll just take them by force. And that's what's happening in verse 1. So I just summarized all of verse 1 right there when we hear Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, came up to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. 
And so you hear what's happening. Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, he's sitting there, and there is a force outside the city gates. There is a stronger and more powerful nation that is ready to lay siege against him. And he is terrified. And it's not just him. It's all of Judah. It's all of the southern kingdom. Verse 2 says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Their hearts shook. They were afraid. So what do we do when we're afraid? I mean, fear is a powerful emotion. Regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, regardless of what you have experienced in this world, you have feared something. You have been afraid. And so what do we do? Well, fear can cause us to hide or take matters into our own hands. Fear can cause us to doubt and to wonder if what we've believed is true. Fear can cause us to question and to disbelieve. And you know what this is like. We don't have a warring nation outside of our gates, but, but we've had that terrifying diagnosis. We've experienced the uncertainty of tomorrow. We've felt the drop in our stomachs when we hear those four terrible words, we need to talk. And fear overtakes us. And when we experience fear, it's easy to wonder, God, I, I thought you were with me. God, I thought you were my help. God, I, I thought you would protect me. And you would protect us. And we start wondering about his word. I mean, surely that's what was happening with Ahaz and Judah. Right in verse 2, it's re- they're referred to as the house of David. Now, this isn't just some offhanded phrase. This phrase, the house of David, it's speaking of the Davidic dynasty. And you remember what was tied up in the Davidic kingdom, in the Davidic kingship. It was, a, it was God's covenant that he made with David. That through David and through his line, the true and ultimate king would one day come. And Ahaz was part of that line. But now, with the threat of Syria and with the greater threat of Assyria, maybe that line will come to an end with Ahaz. And so fear, doubt, disbelief is all setting in. And yet it's in the midst of this that God calls Ahaz to believe. We actually see this call to believe in two different ways. The first is that God says that these threats, they're actually not threats at all. Did you see it in verse 4? God calls these two nations two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're smoldering stumps. This is like, in, in our day, we would maybe say they're, they're burned out cigarette butts. <laughs> okay, they're just smoldering. They're not ablaze. They're not on fire. They're stumps. They're, there's no danger of them erupting again. You have nothing to fear. God is saying to Ahaz, these nations, they're, they're nothing compared to him. They are like burned out cigarette butts. That's the first way he calls them to believe. He says, they're no threat, actually. But then also, he says in verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. 
God is saying, ask for a sign and I will show you you have no reason to fear. Ask for a sign and I will show you that my word is true. Believe. But Ahaz doesn't believe, does he? No, in verse 12 he says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first this sounds actually kind of okay, right? I mean, it sounds maybe a little biblical, kind of pious. It sounds very Deuteronomy 6. That's what it sounds like. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's word tells us that we are not to put the Lord to the test. And in fact, Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy 6. You remember he was led out into the wilderness, and there he was tempted three times by the devil, and he resisted each temptation. And in one of those times he resisted temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Ahaz sounds, he sounds pious, doesn't he? I mean, isn't he being biblical? Like, I'm not going to put God to the test. Don't tell me to ask you for a sign. Seems like he's taking the moral high ground, right? Wrong. (laughs) You see, this situation is unique. It's unique because God is asking him. He is telling him to ask for a sign. You see, this isn't like us trying to put God in a corner and saying, you know, God, if if you do X, then I will follow you. Or if you write it in the sky, right? I mean, how many times have we, we wondered that and thought that, right? If you would just write it in the sky, then I will follow you. Then I will be faithful, now, that's testing God. That's trying to put him in a corner. But, but that's not what's happening here. You see, God is inviting Ahaz to ask for a sign. But when Ahaz refuses, he isn't being pious. He's not being biblical. He's disbelieving God. As the Old Testament theologian Alec Matier put it, Pious though his words sound, Ahaz, by using them, demonstrated himself to be the willfully unbelieving man. And y'all, that is the problem. Ahaz's problem is not the warring nation. And it's not his circumstance, and it's not even his fear. Ahaz's problem is disbelief. And y'all, that's our problem. It's our problem when things feel like they're threatening us. It's our problem when we're overcome by fear. It's not that there aren't real threats. There are. And it's not that fear isn't real. It is. But it's in the midst of those we're called to believe. To believe that God is faithful. To believe in God's word. To believe his promises. And that's what his promises are inviting us to do, to believe. And we see his promises in this passage. There's actually two promises. I don't know if you noticed it. But the first promise occurs between verses 7 and 9. This is where God declares that Ephraim and and Syria, like they're going to fall away. That you don't need to worry about them, right? These are the burning stumps, the smoldering stumps. And in verse 16, he says that the land of whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there's an earlier promise that has an early fulfillment. But then there is a later fulfilled promise that takes place in this passage as well. And that later fulfillment is the one that we're accustomed to hearing. Verses 13 through 14. Hear then, O house of David. 
Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign is that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. The virgin, like, okay, now, now I know it's Advent. I know it's Christmas, right? Even if you haven't been coming to church in a long time, or maybe you've never been to church before, you, you kind of know that you're going to hear about this miraculous virgin birth. And that, that this is something that Christians believe and the church talks about. But, but I wonder if there would be some of us, some of you, who would maybe be sitting there going, uh, that doesn't seem likely. Virgin birth? Surely Isaiah meant something else. In fact, in trying to understand this passage, skeptics have oftentimes tried to interpret it in other ways. Maybe you know this, but... Skeptics will point to the fact that this word virgin, the Hebrew word, actually it's most often translated young girl. Or maybe they'll point to this idea that the son spoken of in the promise, it's actually Isaiah's son in chapter 8. It's really not this future son, this miraculous birth. Let me address those two challenges. It is true that the Hebrew word used here for virgin actually more literally does mean young girl or unmarried girl and that the word that is most often translated virgin isn't the word that's used here but that's beside the point y'all because that's not how translation always works you see it it would have been understood in the jewish culture it would have been self-evident that an unmarried young girl would have been a virgin It would have gone without saying. It would have been just, of course she's a virgin. And so to translate it, virgin, is a natural implication of the word itself. And then this word son that that speaks of a future son, well, it it can't be Isaiah's son of chapter 8. Isaiah's son in chapter 8, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, um, which, like... (laughs) I don't know whether you like your name or not, but you can at least thank your mom. That's not your name, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> so Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, Isaiah's son, like, um, he's not married, born to a young unmarried woman. He's born to Isaiah's wife. Isaiah's wife, who had already had a child before, and so this isn't speaking of the same person. And finally, the birth of the prophet's son to the prophet's wife, though it would have been cause for celebration and rejoicing and excitement, it wouldn't have made national news, at least not in the sense of a virgin birth. I mean, this would have been the natural occasion of what happens when a husband is with his wife. A baby comes. And the sign that is being asked for, well, it's described, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, ask for a sign and let it be so improbable, so inconceivable, so miraculous, a sign like the virgin birth that only God could bring it about. And that's what God does. He says to Ahaz, ask a sign of such miracle, of of such improbability that only I can bring it. But Ahaz says, no, I won't ask you. So God says, well, I'm going to give it to you anyway. 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God makes a promise that only he can fulfill, and the amazing thing is, is that he actually fulfills it. Because in Matthew chapter 1, you remember Joseph is to be wed to Mary, and Mary is found to be with child. But Joseph hasn't been with Mary, and so Joseph, being an honorable man, we're told, he seeks to divorce her quietly, right? To, to put her away quietly, to put her aside quietly, because he doesn't want to ruin her reputation, right? He's an honorable man. And so he's getting ready to divorce her, to end this relationship, when the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says to him, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And and then Matthew goes on and says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What God had declared to Ahaz hundreds of years before What God had promised would come about is coming to pass. The Davidic line would continue. God's promise would endure. God was calling Ahaz to believe. And that's what he's calling us to do. Now, to believe isn't simply giving verbal assent or acknowledging something to be true. Belief means trust. Believe means trusting that God's word is true. It means trusting his promises to be more powerful than our circumstance. It means trusting that God by his son is with us. Because he is. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And y'all, that is what we need. That in the midst of trial and occasion and in the midst of our fears, what we need is God with us. And he is. You know, a number of years ago, there was a man named Butch White. He was uh, pumping gas at a gas station in Austin, Texas. He was filling up his tank when he heard the terrifying sound of cars crashing, of an accident occurring behind him. And so he swung around quickly to look to where the sound had come from. And there he saw in the middle of one of Austin's busiest intersections, a truck flipped over resting on its roof. Now, Butch White stopped pumping his gas, and he ran over to the car, and he saw the window broken out, and he looked in, and he saw the driver no longer in the driver's seat, but she was laying limp over top of the passenger, over top of the passenger seat, over top of the passenger dashboard. And Butch White, looking through the broken window, he wasn't a doctor, he wasn't a medical professional, he had no medical training. He couldn't help her. And yet he got down on his hands and knees and he crawled through the broken window. He walked, climbed into the wreckage and he sat with the woman and he held her. He held her as they waited for the firemen to come and to cut her free. He entered into the wreck and sat with her in the midst of her fear and was with her. Y'all, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. 
But Jesus doesn't just enter into our circumstance and our occasion. He doesn't, isn't just with us in our fear. He isn't simply present. Jesus is more than that. Because he is with us so that he would save us. He doesn't sit with us and wait for someone else to come to deliver us. Jesus is with us to save us. That's what Matthew tells us, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us to save us from our sin. And so, friends, today, do not let fear or worry, do not let situation or circumstance cause you to doubt or to disbelieve. And said today, believe. Believe that the God who made that promise to Ahaz thousands of years ago is the same God who fulfilled that promise 2,000 years ago in Christ. Believe in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would teach us to believe. And that, Father, we believe but help our unbelief. Help our doubt, help our disbelief, help the times when we allow fear or circumstance or occasion to cloud our viewing of you. Help us, Father, to believe, to believe in you and to believe in the Son that you have sent, our Lord Jesus, who has come to be with us, to save us from our sins. Let us believe in him and trust in him. Help us to do that today in all of our days. And we pray all this in the name of Christ and all God's people said together, Amen.